This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource. Please consider making a donation through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. Your continued belief and support in this project is incredibly important, and I thank you for your generosity. This episode profiles Fabienne Lasserre. Fabienne makes three-dimensional work that walks the line between sculpture and painting. Her most recent pieces utilize materials like welded metal rod armatures, stretched vinyl, swatches of fabric, and playful applications of paint to create large-scale, freestanding abstractions that often take on the shape of an imperfect oval or ellipse. The forms can be geometric and sharp, or more minimal and open, and feel like a line drawing moving through space. The work is full of dynamic contours and visual passageways, and considers ideas related to the body and movement, feminist thought, and color as a conceptual device. We recorded this conversation at her studio in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. We sort of talked about it earlier is, is um, how we met and we were in that show together 10 years ago. Um, and I, you know, as I was sort of preparing to come over and see you, I was thinking about the work that I saw 10 years ago and how it sort of changed and evolved and developed into the work that you're making now. And one of the things that I thought was interesting are the, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been using a lot of the same materials for a while, mm-hmm. but the end form has has changed in scale, it's changed in dimension. Um, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to start off by talking about that development and how tweaks and turns um, in your life and in your studio practice uh, have sort of opened up and allowed you to make different types of work, but all through like the same group of materials. Is that something that uh, we can latch on to in the beginning here? Yeah, totally. We can start like that. Um, The first thing I thought of when you said that was, okay, scale. Yeah, they have became, become a lot larger. Yeah. Um, And I think that strangely or interestingly the moment they became big was immediately after my daughter's birth Ah. they for some reason just grew exponentially or that might be an exaggeration but they just grew a lot they became a lot bigger yeah um and i also became a lot faster at making them so (laughs) for you know why yeah yeah i mean i mean that's a result of becoming a parent you learn to work more efficiently right but so they became big, but kind of quicker to make, strangely. Uh-huh. Um, and what else? What the other difference I would say between 10 years ago when we met and now is that they used to be a lot more body-like or creature-like. And yeah. I really understood them as kind of metaphors of bodies or bodies that I could re- reinvent and think of under a very feminist lens and, and politically sure. how to understand a body without kind of falling into binary oppositions and, you know, male, female and uh, self, other, yeah. inside, outside, yeah. etc. So those were the the ideas I was thinking with and they ended up with limbs or orifices and you know very direct references to bodies yeah more like appendages i remember like tube-like forms yeah. that could represent uh, a some sort of limb or, or a phallus yeah yeah, or, yeah yeah um and then i started eventually thinking of you know another dichotomy that we often think of in relation to bodies is the self and the other or the self and the outside interior exterior and thinking of space around these pieces as equally important in relation to the body uh, and to the political ideas uh, concerning the bodies Uh so instead of focusing on bodies themselves i started also focusing on the the body of the viewer 
and the spaces around the bodies and the pieces became more like contexts for a body or like a frame that you could you could imagine yourself being framed by the shape or you could some were empty so you could kind of walk into them yeah. or they could receive a body for sure you know i was <clears throat> read a few uh, maybe press releases and maybe a couple interviews in preparation to come over here. And I wrote down a list of words that popped up more than once. And I wanted to relay these <laughs> words. Well, you know, I think it's an interesting exercise to bring up language, uh -huh. um, the language we speak in this context, because we are both visual artists. Mm -hmm. Yet here we are trying to describe these things that we make to be seen through conversation. So words are helpful. Um, but a few words that popped up were ellipses, portals, surface, haptic and touch, yeah. uh, um, tactile. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like some of these words I think were from 10 years ago, somewhere more recently, but do those words still have a place with these works, do you, would you say? Would you add yeah, anything to absolutely. that list? Yeah, Or strike anything from it? Um, no, so you said elli ellipse, portals, um, those to me are related sure. and then the haptic and tactile who are also related and and they're those two kind of subgroups are super important still and let's start with like ellipse and portals yeah. i find those super interesting in terms of painting and you know the kind of renaissance conception of the painting as a window right and to me a portal is a lot more interesting or fertile than a window or maybe not more but equally mm -hmm. differently a portal can move around too yeah and it transposes yeah. you you go from one dimension right. to another right. windows <laughs> are more static they don't move i feel like portals uh appear and reappear uh, anyways yeah yeah and windows maybe more so than a portal especially in relation to painting kind of pre suppose a fixed point of view mm -hmm. but i i really get into this kind of thinking of sculpture in relation to optical devices and these pieces that you see here that look like kind of lens with yeah. with colored gradients we often think of optical devices in relation to 2d medium like painting the window like photography obviously but never i think in relation to sculpture and I'm I'm kind of pushing those issues together sure. here. And to me, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Do you identify as a sculptor? Do you call these sculptures? I mean, we sort I of talked about binary language, right? Yeah. Like, and it's itchy, right? Like, as artists, we we like to be flexible, but we do find ourselves in these situations where we have to sort of describe our our art artistic identity. I go back and forth. If someone tells me you're a sculptor, I say, yeah, but I'm a painter. And if they mm -hmm. say the opposite, I'll say, yeah, but I'm a sculptor. Yeah. And I'm obviously not going to fight really hard to argue that they are not sculptures or not paintings. Um, but I'm very interested in that merging of the two or, yeah, or there's a know, relationship not choosing there. between the two, yeah. but I also see that forcing them together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's about that relationship. Like, I really think about painting and sculpture D did i read that you studied painting i studied painting and yeah. i teach painting and you teach painting i and mean i look at painting perhaps more than mm -hmm. anything else mm -hmm. and color is crucial yeah. to me yeah. um and i think more than any other characteristic color defines painting sure like to me more than two-dimensionality or the canvas or yeah. the stretchers or um to me color is absolutely cru crucial yeah let's painting. talk about that i think i, I think um i read a <coughs> line that said uh, you uh, you sort of describe color as being paramount um you use at least in the works that we're looking at now um you know, it's it's a pretty sort of bright range of color. Well, in this one, you've got some magentas and reds and yellows and maybe like a pink ground. ground. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the works behind, we have like a deep navy, almost like ocean color at night. Um, <laughs> and But in these two works with the transparent lens, they have a gradient in them. Um, talk about the role 
or, or how you use color, how you select the colors that you that you put into these sculptures. Yeah, it's funny. It's a it's a really good exercise to try to talk about color because it's probably the hardest thing to talk about. Yeah, and like it's a cliche to say that color eludes words. Right. But um, I have a very precise idea of what I want the effect or the affect I want to create with color, but I could not really describe it in words generally. Sure. A lot of the stuff is unexplainable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's the fun of it. Mm -hmm. But I can also say that to me, um, there's some of these colors that are very airy and they float around the piece and others that are very colors that are stuck in their materiality. Mm Mm-hmm. And that are they're very material colors. Yeah, um, and that's the difference to me. That's really interesting, and I combine them and and play with that a lot. Um, also, I love that some colors, the ones that float around the piece, um, I love that you can't really say, "Oh, this belongs to this material because it's floating, it's around." So, to me, that fact that it's difficult to ascribe a color to an object Mm -hmm. carries a lot of kind of political potential or metaphorical meaning that you can't just fix things um to to yeah they're not fixed categories yeah yeah i noticed on the (coughs) on the wall your studio wall back here it looks like a swatch chart with a couple i shouldn't say a couple maybe uh, a dozen two dozen color swatches with with notes next to them is this typical of your process are you are you sort of plotting out the colors you might use in in a in a forthcoming sculpture well i i that was for a proposal for um a a public art piece i was making and actually those colors my i was trying to get to the colors that my daughter drew with her prismacolor colors i made I drew the sculpture many times and I asked her to fill it out. <laughs> yeah. So basically she chose the chose the colors and That's I was fantastic. trying to match them yeah. with paint. And then because as you know the different kinds of red look very different when white is added, I just wrote down which which red was which red mm-hmm. um and ended up using for the other sculptures that are in the room. And I just kept it up there because it's really useful. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean like note taking it's funny, like in my own painting practice, I forget to take notes along the way. And I think it's a really useful thing because I forget what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and having things like this around you while you're working, especially in our very busy lives and as parents, you know, you know, go, going back to efficiency, it's like smart to have this sort of stuff on hand and to like keep records. Yeah. Use the work that has been done already. Yeah. Reuse it. Interesting to hear you say you you um, your daughter is sort of a you know a, a collaborator and adding mm-hmm. some of the color. There there is a youthfulness to some of these colors. I know this volcano uh, um, piece is 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 a, a work that <laughs> you made with your kids, maybe for a school project or just for fun. But um, talk about that collaboration a little bit with more. The kids, yeah. Uh, well, for all sorts of reasons, just mainly fun and also because I can if I bring her here I get to be here too yeah she ends up in the studio quite often and she has painted several sculptures I would say um I have photos of her that are really cute painting this huge huge piece when she's tiny (laughs) um and often I'll ask her you know what should I do here? I mean, and then I, of course I choose if I listen to it. She doesn't always have good ideas. <laughs> Maybe we could talk about process a bit more. We started talking about color and, you know, you know the, the swatch chart. Um, are you comfortable sharing kind of how these are made? Um, sometimes artists are, are more protective of that information. And No, sure, sure. They are, for the most part, I mean, they, they come about in different ways, but the transparent ones that y- people usually think are... Is, plexiglass or glass yeah the lens ones here. yeah, yeah. They, that's in fact stretched vinyl fabric so they're super light mm-hmm. and qu- quite easy to make I, okay. I, I make a i weld an armature in steel and i just kind of stretch mm-hmm. like a drum mm-hmm. like you would yeah stretch a drum. yeah these sort of look like drum faces or right. you know w- they could 
um, you know, for descriptive purposes. Yeah, drum face or tambourine face. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then I spray paint them or I paint them or I layer them with linen uh -huh. and acrylic what, what is the What is the outer sort of rim that's covering the steel armature? It looks like a uh, collage of some sort of paper mache. That's fabric. It's, that that I it's fabric? That I dip in acrylic polymer. Okay. So basically it's a paper mache equivalent mm -hmm. or similar process, but it's, I guess, a bit more sturdy mm -hmm. and a bit faster. Mm -hmm. I don't have to put as many layers. Right. Um, and then you go, in in, go into that with paintbrushes, it looks mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, there, there's that interest in painting. Right. And then sometimes I don't cover it. And some of that linen I have dyed myself, so I, I respond to those colors also. Um, yeah, that's the, the process. <laughs> do, you, do you do small drawings? I mean, um, you know, these are more round kind of oval shapes. This one's sort of like a kidney. Um, at what a point do you decide the, sh the like <laughs> the contour of this? Because I feel like the contour of your work, the overall overall contour, especially of your pieces that get installed on the floor, is uh, you know one of the more powerful parts. Wondering how you arrive at the shape of these. Yeah, I always make drawings that I very rarely follow, um, but I always you know you have to have a something to start. At least I do, mm -hmm. um, and I also have to have something I'm excited to to start yeah. if not I won't start um, so I have something I'm excited then it doesn't really work then I have to adjust to that and accept yeah. the, the next the, the other version of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what you're, I'm you're reacting to the, the object in front of you yeah. as it sort of fails and succeeds in different spots yeah and I think I was just thinking that Skill is not necessarily getting better at something, but <laughs> learning to accept yeah. the, or to see the, the strength in what you hadn't planned. And in my case, it has been more of that nature. <laughs> That's well said. I think I read somewhere you mentioned um, failure as a tool or, or seeing some of these challenges like gravity. I know you, you wrestle with gravity. Talk about that. It, it, like That's an interesting little zone to go into, this like sort of skill interpreting skill, defining skill, using failure to your, your advantage. Mm -hmm, can you talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit? I can. I think that's pretty much at the crux, or that's the only way I'm, al I'm able to continue is, is not to mourn <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all my ideas that never succeeded. <laughs> um, and also, okay, so one good example, I was just talking with Esther about who's my assistant. Mm -hmm. um, about these easy, easy solutions. Like, and we're like, okay, easy is not lazy. And lazy even is not necessarily bad. <laughs> right. Um, and we have leaks all over the studio. And of course, it's in spite of all our kind of precautions, there's always stuff that gets damaged. And then recently, I finally found a solution for every damaged piece. And I was really excited. <laughs> what but were some of the solutions? Well, Real that's quick. why that piece got painted yellow because there was water drops that I couldn't get rid of on the vinyl under it. But it looks great. All right, so you're just I sort just of patching with paint or yeah. covering it, or that's a section that gets reworked. Oh yeah, sure, okay. But it's you know it seems like obvious, but it took me a while to find that solution. Yeah. <laughs> and then two minutes to do it. <laughs> it looks like it belongs though. I mean that yellow rebounding off those oranges and magentas in that in that swipe of almost a royal blue below it um it looks good i know right? it's, it it, it <laughs> the 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 conversation of that yellow within the other colors makes sense it's funny i wouldn't have guessed that that's like a new addition it looks like it's been there a long time right or you hopefully don't guess that it's concealing yeah a, a fix. horror yeah. <laughs> um a fix, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I can assure you that the piece is much better now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's sometimes a great thing of when things don't go as planned is it Im can, with any luck, improve Be the better. work. Or strengthen the work, right? Um, this is a good example of that. You know, while we're talking about process, uh, one of the things I like to ask artists in these conversations is sort of their psychology while they're working and... And if making 
and being in studio is is joyful? Is it frustrating? Is it anxiety producing? Sometimes it's a mix of all these things. Or are you the type of artist that's able to completely step out of what's in front of you while you're making it and think about something totally unrelated? I mean, what, where, where is your mind? Where, where are your thoughts while you're working on this stuff? I don't think I'm a very anxious artist. Um, I, I would say ease or joy is, is a, I mean, not always, but it's, it's a, a feeling in the studio. And especially getting to the studio once I'm there, my life is better. Yeah. You know, if I, if I have enough hours that I can dedicate to it, that's always a good mood mm -hmm. thing. Um, that said, I'm still, I'm very serious or I'm very, it's intense, but I'm, I think I have learned to some extent not to be too, uh, not to be too worried or, or yeah, not to mourn all these failed or failed things. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, the studio space can be uh, a sacred place and this place of healing and sort of self-care, um, a place where we process the outside world um, and maybe come out feeling better about things in our personal lives or, or whatever. Um, other times it can, you know, it can be this more frustrating place. And yeah. it sounds like you've gotten to this place where sort of not mourning the things that aren't working. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like does that come with the, through the type of just working through it or with a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of age, or is, or is this something beyond that? Well, for me, it's time. Yeah. I, I mean, age, mm -hmm. it's definitely easier now, but I know I have lots of friends who told me that it never got easier. Yeah. Um, I'm less stressed out about each decision or that doesn't mean I find it easy. I'm trying to find the accurate word to describe something that is very difficult. Like I think making good art is very difficult. Yeah. I don't always succeed. Um, and that still is quite joyful and, and calm or not calm. That's not even peaceful, mm -hmm. but all those words kind of don't describe it accurately. Yeah. <laughs> Another that, unexplainable thing. Perhaps. Yeah. That mix of intensity and, and real, Mm -hmm. challenge or difficulty mm -hmm. and joy i guess yeah yeah i mean sometimes <laughs> coming to studio is setting up a bunch of problems and then trying to solve them um and that can be really rewarding as you as you mm -hmm. sort of like zigzag through trying to get to some place that feels satisfying uh, right yeah. i don't set up problems because i feel there's enough problems already to solve between the time to get to the studio with kids and teaching and then the leaks on the seat that destroy the paint like yeah. there's always problems in life anyway mm -hmm. <laughs> but definitely kind of coming up with solutions that are meaningful and maybe not too that makes sense in a variety of way uh, both in terms of ideas in terms of practical kind of solutions that's i think that's a huge part of it right let's sort of circle back to um process a little bit since we're still sort of in the studio zone here is does making the the structure or the form i i have a feeling that happens first and then maybe like the surface treatment and the painting of it is sort Comes of after. towards the tail end of the process generally but uh, these are not so much the case, but many other way shapes that are these are very simple shapes like a circle or a you said a kidney bean. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as they're a bit more complicated, it's because I I was able to attach something else, or I could, you know, I could I might try start painting and then I'll change the form by cutting back into it. So all my materials I've kind of devised or. The ones that stick are the ones that allow me to change my mind as I go. Yeah. Um, it's always, always a kind of a process of unthinking, undoing, and redoing, rethinking. Mm -hmm. Sounds like being flexible is important. And yeah. being open yeah. to to 
yeah, that material not working out. I mean, again, going back to like that, like using the, the failure as an advantage or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And being able to make pieces that can, I see them as very adaptable in terms of where or how they can be shown. Yeah. Um, I've shown them in a barn or in, you know, it does certainly does not need to be a white cube. Right. Um, and I, I think it's important to ha- make, to me, to make pieces that are adaptable. <laughs> That's the strength of them. And the way I think of them is that through these transparent elements or these holes, they include the environments. Um, but they don't rely on the it necessarily. Yeah, that's well said. You know, installation plays a role in these. Um, will these ones that are sort of suspended from the ceiling, you know, they're sort of in progress or maybe maybe they're completed, but will they be relying on the floor as a support? Will these, will these be freestanding sculptures like I've seen of works of yours in the past, uh, you know, handful of years? Right. We yeah. One never knows. One never knows. <laughs> but in I, guess, I guess that's the question. At what point do you decide? Does it suspend? Does it sit on the floor? Yeah. Now I'm really, I'm trying, and I think it's the first time I've ever done that, decide in advance that they're all going to be hanging and trying to make a body of work for a, a show of just hanging sculptures. Suspended sculptures. Okay. Yeah. Um, it could change. I don't think, I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is like, this is something I'm, I'm always curious, curious about when I speak with artists that work three dimensionally is, you know, the vantage point for the viewer is, uh, is, is, is moving because you can, you can, depending on how they're installed, you can walk around them. Mm-hmm. Do these ever have like a, a you know, for lack of a better term, a front and a back for you. I feel like we have to sometimes choose that, especially when we're documenting through photography or something like this is this is the first view I want the viewer right, to see. Right. I mean, how do you how do you discern those choices? Well, I think of that a lot and I try I, I guess my answer would be they don't. I'm trying not to to establish a hierarchy between one side over the other which front would be would be a you know more important and back would be less yeah. so i'm trying to avoid that but the other thing i'm tra- that i think of a lot is trying to make a situation where it's not like a card that you flip and you get a resolution or it's a contrast it's a very slow and steady um change Mm -hmm. so they're never the same on each side but they also don't change quickly yeah um and i I made a piece once called now after now because of that kind of motion as you walk around it it's just one now after the other now after now after now but it's it changes and you can only understand them through walking around them and so movement is crucial these suspended or hanging pieces, you have to move around them, but they also move because they're so light just by the viewer moving around them too. So, so they, they sort of wiggle a little bit they sometimes? They wiggle, yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. oscillate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I you know, we, we went over a few words to describe your work at the front of the conversation. And movement is one that I would put in there. I feel like I've always associated that term with your work, even 10 years ago with the more, f- <laughs> more figurative references with the the, the 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 more recent work, they still have a, an element of movement. You know, the the oval or the the eclipse or the circle. You sort of, you know, there are these pivot points of the arm and and how a figure might move through space um, or measurements of movement in a way right, or recordings right. of movement in a way. Yeah. So I like that term. They're definitely also, you know, you're talking about recording of movement or measurement measurement of movement. They're always something I can move on my own. So they're rarely wider than my, my arms spread out. Yeah. They're <laughs> within scale to you, the maker. Right. Yeah. And right. do they get heavy? Can you pick rarely. them all up? Yeah. Some do, some do. But these are super light. Yeah, I think that's one of the powerful things about your work is the... Um, the different vantage points and and the the impact that each vantage point vantage point has for me as the viewer, especially with the the elliptical things, because ellipses and circles when you start walking around them really, the the the, the dynamic quality of them really, really can change based on where you're standing. Right, and it's and they disappear on themselves at a certain exactly. point. Exactly, yeah. they become a line yeah. on one 
from two angles, at uh-huh. least two angles. Uh-huh. And that's really fun when when installing to play with that to me. And, and that's what I think a lot about how uh, a viewer that would never be static, mm-hmm. would never be standing in place, would just see these and, and make different connections and um, understand them through moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking a little bit about audience now <coughs> and, and the viewer. When you're making these, do you consider audience at all and who's going to see these and maybe who who you might even make these for? Do voices come into your head? Like, what is my friend so-and-so going to think of this section in this part? I mean, what sorts mm-hmm. of voices come in, come through your through your mind while you're making these, whether it's audience or yeah, peers or friends question. or enemies? Huh, I don't think I... A lot of the process is so inarticulate <laughs> to me Yeah, um, that conversations do happen but often it's later and there you know i have uh several people who i trust and who are i'm who are i invite and they i value their opinions extremely and they're influential but i don't know that i'm sure their voices are in me but it's not that clear right uh when i'm starting a process right, a right. project but a lot of friends have found solutions for me sure (laughs) you know like oh this piece is finished and i'm like oh really oh great um or you should do this and i listen sometimes (laughs) i have a i'm in a group for it's the fifth year that we do this of that we visit each studio each of our studios every month and that's fantastic yeah but again this this me trying to answer how voices are or are not in in my process and it just reminds me how so much is not about words. And so, of course, they are, but in a way that is not articulate at all mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with choosing color. Like, it's ha- I'm trying, I'm struggling again with finding a word that involves precision and, and you know, rigor, but it's still completely kind of fluid and murky. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> We're sort of talking about the magic behind a lot of this and the indescribable again. And yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think sometimes this project sort of threads the needle on is like finding words to describe this stuff, but also respecting and honoring when it doesn't. Um, So I like this actually not even coming up with a word. Right. Let's do a little bit of biography, if you're okay with that. Mm -hmm. I know that you're, you're originally from Canada. Yeah, from Montreal. From Montreal. Uh, do you recall, or what was your introduction to art? Do you remember as a child, were you, did you have, did your family have artwork on the wall around you or, or was there something sort of visual that stuck with you at a, at a, as a young person? My mom was the, a director of a printmaking gallery. So there were, there was lots of prints in my house. And also she would bring us, like we did etchings as kids. Um, and we would have to go to all the openings, which was a drag then. <laughs> I, I like the operative word, you had to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you would, if you, if you had a choice, you would not have gone. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think I liked it still. Yeah. But there were, there was art, but not that much, um, in the house, but definitely a lot of interest in art. Yeah. One of the things mm. that I've been sort of reflecting on, you know, at, talking about influences when we were young is the things that were on my bedroom walls when I was a kid. Did you have posters or clippings or anything on your on your walls growing up? Not as re- a small kid. No? Or I don't remember. We also moved a lot. Okay. So I don't have a mem I don't have memories of my bedroom. No. It changed several times a year. Sure. But I do have a few I have mem clear memories of a few prints and paintings that my parents had and they probably weren't in the same room every time we moved but I that um, process of looking at something over months and years and you know over a long time yeah that I think is super formative yeah learning to look yeah yeah and learning to understand how something is made through the 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 way it looks yeah 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 trying to figure out what materials right. were used Think, or thick paint yeah, yeah. or 
yeah. how it mixed, etc. Was there a moment that you sort of landed on the idea that you could be an artist? Or was it something that happened more gradually? Happened uh, gradually. Yeah. I think I always wanted, I always liked it, wanted it to be an artist. It took me a while to have the confidence to say I could and I would. And I would even say, you know, like late in my 20s, 25, I, I actually maybe said the A word. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's that, that all that uncommon. I identify with that. No, but I have students now, they're, they're freshmen and they're like, I'm an artist. And my work is and my practice is. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Another big difference, I think, between uh, living here in New York and 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 being an artist in Montreal, um, there there's an amazing scene and very good artists there. But my my world, my friends, my community were many more, I don't know, writers or journalists or not not artists. So I was making art pretty much alone, and that feedback we were talking about, our community was pretty much unexistent for me. Yeah, and that made a huge difference when I moved here. Yeah, what brought you to New York? I came to do my MFA. Oh, okay. I, but I knew I would stay. Yeah. I wanted to be in New York since I was sixteen. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, maybe I know it's 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 sort of a a, a tropey conversation, but you know this idea or narrative that artists need need or or or, or should be in these hubs new york la berlin because of the proximity to the industry that supports artists mm -hmm. or you know um you know a, a large population of people that have disposable income to spend right, money on right. the arts do you ever feel like you would like to check somewhere else out or that you could do maintain your practice and the support network that you're describing outside of New York? Yeah, you know, <laughs> never say never, but I really like it here. And at one point in my life, I thought if I had kids, I would move back to Canada, not only because it's much easier, but because I actually wanted them to grow up in a system where they can take health insurance for granted and understand that that's a right not a privilege and it's not even a question that and many other uh, political <laughs> aspects yeah that i i would yeah i wanted to raise my kids in that kind of situation huh. but i had one and stayed here and it's actually really fun to raise a kid in new york i find yeah yeah i think it's a good place to raise kids too i'm doing it as well yeah it's really <laughs> amazing i think this is a good spot to talk about how artists survive or subsidize their studio practices. You know, the cost of living in New York and these cities is increase, getting increasingly higher. A lot of us have day jobs. Mm -hmm. I know that you are uh, faculty at MICA, MICA which yeah. is uh, the Maryland Institute College of Art, College of Art in, in, Baltimore. in Baltimore. So you commute from New York City, where you live, down to Baltimore. Um, can you talk about... <laughs> maybe getting into teaching and, and how, how it helps your studio practice, if it does, or, or how it complements. Um, I'm sure there's moments where it gets in the way because you have t like time as a resource and it takes time to make this stuff. But talk about like how, how, how you're able to, to sort of manage and balance all this stuff. Right. I mean, the only way in which it gets in the way is because of time. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's I've found I've been doing it for I think it's twelve years. Immediately after graduating grad school, I started, and I've always really liked it. And there are many, many, many students I've that have become friends mm -hmm. over the years, and many more that I just keep in touch with. Um, and as the, you know, when I started, I wasn't that much older than them, and now I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that as I, as that age difference is increasing, I find it more and more inspiring to see people from a different generation who are interested in the same things as I am, yeah. and, you know, like, who like weird, to make weird things, and like to be surprised by something that looks strange and interesting and beautiful and like to think about it 
and they might think about it slightly differently. I don't even know. I don't think there's a big difference. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely common ground that is really inspiring. For sure. Yeah, it must be reassuring <laughs> to, to work with young people and, and notice really similarities fun. or, you know, like echoes of you as a younger person maybe in them. Um, or echoes of me now. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's really, it's it's fun. It's interesting. And, and at Micah has, th- we have really good students and they're really interesting um, for the most part. Yeah. And <laughs> you teach uh, drawing classes, painting classes, sculpture classes, something else? Um, I'm in the painting department. I teach drawing and painting, okay. but I have one class that is my kind of my favorite class, which is called Around Flat Around Painting flat. in 2D and 3D, which uh, is, as you might yeah. guess, the one I designed and <laughs> very in line with what I do. That's so your wheelhouse. That's my, yeah, that's my my fun baby (laughs) yeah i I mean i i teach too i adjunct around um but i agree i feel like engaging other people in the classroom or in the studio is a wonderful way to share ideas and techniques and information and i've always thought that um you know one of the main or maybe not main but one of the important functions of art is to share ideas um, and I, you know, the classroom is a very efficient place to do that. So I agree. It's also to me, in a way, one of the most radical spaces of the art world because it's one where there's most possibilities. Um, and that's really, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. That's well said. Uh, let's shift gears and, and, and talk a little bit more about parenting. We, we sort of talked about having, <laughs> working with your with your kid in here and, and, and the sort of freedom that, that comes with watching a young kid um, make work or select colors and, and you know, work outside of the, out of the line, so to speak. Um, but how, how, and we talked about efficiency and how having, becoming a parent sort of mm-hmm. forces your hand to work a certain way. Um, are there any other th- things or ways that becoming a mother has affected how you make art or how you think about art or what art means to you. Um, I don't know. I think, I think sometimes these, these topics are, are valuable to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's also a really big question. I know some women uh, refuse to talk about that until, or I, I, let's say I'm going to put it differently. Some women, me included, maybe would, argue that they would they shouldn't answer those questions until the same question is asked of men and you're bringing your child i'm not accusing you because you have brought your parenting in the equation from the beginning but i think it is a question that's asked of yeah women. it's very gendered completely you know, absolutely um that said it's still uh incredible experience to be a parent it's strangely the most common experience in the world and the most exceptional i think um and it brings in a ton of joy and a ton of struggle and i think it it's to me has just given me an expanded conception of life or the world or whatever yeah um expanded meaning not better or or worse but just much larger (laughs) a lot more breadth that's well said. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, it's it's loaded for um, a man to ask uh, a woman about parenting in the studio, um, and I understand that. I ask all the f- fathers, fathers I well. speak to mm-hmm. in this project about parenting too, um, so I do try and look for that balance. Absolutely, but uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, but yeah, having you know, the other thing we sort of talked about, not mourning the 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 challenges or the failures of of work in the studio or or not getting too frustrated sometimes i think having a kid provides um a little bit of context to sort of remind us that the that like the failures or challenges in the studio are actually pretty small relative to the well-being of your kid it gives you perspective yeah yeah so i think that's one of the great valuable but also i think it it allows you to understand that not everything is up to you 
and that you can't you think you control your life but you really don't stuff happens shit happens um and we have an illusion that we can will and that's very american too to like will our our life to become something of our choice and it's just not true i don't think it's true no i agree <laughs> it's the facade of some sort of american dream right. or american um, ingenuity or something like this, right. or perseverance, it's bullshit. I think it is. <laughs> Let's talk about the studio a little bit. Um, you know, we're in your space that I, I you've been here for a couple years. I've it was supposed to be here, temporary, but you've right, been here for two my, years. My good friend Nicola Lopez lets me use it. Uh, <laughs> amazing. And our, our lives are completely intertwined. We have kids the same age, and we joke often that we're a three parents, two kids family. Um, but so I've been working with her for the last two years, and I think she might be the only person that we can work side by side without a wall, without and without any issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, really nice. Yeah, it's great. You've got this big series of skylights. It feels like it may have been like an old garage or something like that, something where light industry took place. Um, there's, what, one, two, three, Three artists that share this space. Two, two, it's just, just two. And I, okay, yeah. uh, and you've got some of your works that are suspended from the ceiling. You've got works mounted to the wall. There's uh, this really wonderful storage system that we talked about before we turned on the microphones. Yeah, it's Brian almost like a built that. <laughs> it's like a, 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 a vertical locker that you can sort of slide your your sculptures in and out of. Not unlike how. Um, you know, like a, r like rugs you would, or something. You would hang clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a like a closet for your mm -hmm. <laughs> for your sculptures, which <laughs> is great. Um, maybe we can tiptoe into sort of like how you uh, manage studio visits. This is something that a, a lot of artists um, think about: is uh, um, how to conduct a studio visit, how to how to direct a studio visit, how to prepare for a studio visit. Do you do anything out of the uh, ordinary you know, for the stuff? I just never know how to do it or yeah. what to do. And I, it, again, time is limited and I always end up running late. I am late. No, I mean, not half an hour. I don't mean I just show up late, but I'm just never as prepared as I would want to. And that's just how it happens. So I think it's a lot more contingent on everything else that's going in my life than any strategy right, I have. Right. One thing that I that I sort of shared with a a, a student recently or a, a f another friend is, if someone asks for a studio visit, I think it's okay to ask them what their intentions are prior to them right. coming over. Why are they coming? Why are they yeah, coming? Absolutely. Um, and I don't think a lot of us do that enough. And then um, because I think depending on the type of studio visit it is, there might be some small tweaks here and there that absolutely. can that can that can make it a better experience for both you and whoever's coming over. So, you know, I would prepare differently for like a friend coming over versus uh, a collector versus a gallerist versus um, a class of like a, a, a professor bringing a class of students or something like that. So asking up front what, what the intention is, I think is a small little thing. I don't know that's sort of a new thing for me is like asking that question. Yeah. It's and a small what, thing, but I do don't do it enough. What do you want to see? Is there yeah. anything specific? Yeah. Because And also, please don't cancel five minutes before because there's actually work involved in yeah. me coming, yeah. taking things out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe we could talk about artistic hygiene. And this is another uh, topic that comes up in these conversations. And I, I use that term sort of broadly, um, how we take care of ourselves uh, both physically and mentally, because the act of being an artist can be exhausting on, mm -hmm. on both fronts, and it can wreck our bodies and sometimes our brains. Does anything come to and mind with how you take care of yourself on these fronts? Yeah. I. What do I do? I try to sleep, get enough sleep, and I run. <laughs> Those run. are my two necessary things. Um and actually, I run. I push my daughter to school. That's my run. Because you have a I jogger stroller? Uh-huh. And I don't have enough time to do both, bring her to school and exercise, so I combine. <laughs> I'm a multitasker. Mm -hmm. Is running a space where you can think about ideas? 
No, I don't. I can't think. I just uh, zone out, and that's probably the the reason why it's so good for me is that I don't think it took. I turn off. That's great. I run too, and the reason why I ask if you think about ideas because that's actually where I get a lot of ideas. Really? Yeah, so I'm kind of the opposite. You're so you actually have things that you. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of problem. To me? I problem solve, problem solve while I run, which is weird, wow. but for some reason. My chemistry allows for that. I disconnect. <laughs> I just, sometimes I don't even really know where I am or where I'm going. Good for you. That sounds like me in the studio. That's where I disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've heard other artists talk about uh, good art hygiene as, as participating in the, the culture of art in your town or city. Do you attend openings? Do you go to museums? Do you look at work? How, where I do you do fall on that? I look at work. I love yeah. going to see shows. That's definitely a, a thing that I love doing. And I have a notebook and I take notes and I often go alone because I love thinking about work. To me, you know, art is really not separable from the, the attempt to understand. So a work is not separated from the attempt to understand it. So that whole process of trying to understand or describe a piece of art is really beautiful and interesting to me. Yeah. That said, I also love to go see shows with friends. Mm -hmm. But I'll go, you know, I love going to the Met. I love seeing older stuff. And yeah. Also, obviously, contemporary stuff. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons we're all here is we have all these things right down the street, the Met. It's amazing. Museums, yeah. And I'm very mad at the Met for not being free anymore that's a new thing yeah um i i feel insulted even <laughs> though i i show my driver's license and i get in for almost free um i don't think they should have done that yeah what is it for people that live in new york state it's new still york state, yeah still um pay as you will or maybe a smaller yeah, fee if you live if you live out of state it's you pay the, whole, it, it's the full fee yeah. which i think is outrageous considering the fact that the collection there is from all over the world. Like, <laughs> this is stuff that belongs to everyone. Yeah, that's well said. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so there, the Met is not that expensive if you pay only a suggested donation. And then the galleries for all the kind of grossness of many aspects of the commercial art world are still providing a free service for anyone who wants to come in. And that's extraordinary. Yeah, agreed. And this is this is sometimes tricky, but let's try talking about the DNA of your work, or maybe who your work, who or what your work might be indebted to. My first, the first word that come to mind was feminism, mm -hmm. um, but that you know almost says nothing because there are so many feminisms, and um, yeah, I mean it's a start, but it's not very precise. Uh, but That's okay. To me. When I say feminism, I mean first a, a kind of idea of under or let me put that differently: understanding the world or questioning the world um, in ways that don't need to be polar. I guess that's the main contribution of feminism to my work or my thinking. Um, art. I mean, there are so many artists. That Eva Hesse has been a huge influence. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's self. Particularly with like almost. breaking the picture plane, like coming off the wall. Yeah. Touching the floor from the wall. Yeah, I can see some of that. Yeah. Another major, major influence is Helio Oiticica and Lydia Pape. They're both Brazilian. Amazing. Oh, okay. Uh, use of color and, and abstraction as political and uh, spatial. You know, installation practices of kind of taking, taking Mondrian into space. <laughs> um, who else? Franz West. What about? Um, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if uh, uh, if the the idea of being an artist and making things and returning to this studio to keep making things is some sort of pursuit. We're in pursuit of something. Sometimes, going back to the sort of undescribable or unknowable, sometimes I don't know what, what I'm chasing, but I feel like I'm after something. Um, yeah. What are, what are some of the things that drive you or, or, or like keep you coming back? And then maybe, you know, sort of a tangent sort of question off that is like when you're satisfied in here. 
Yeah, the that feeling of running after something or really wanting something but not knowing what it is that feels that really resonates <laughs> that your description of it the other thing that really for some reason keeps me coming is color i just really really love color <laughs> um and that's the simplest way i can describe it but i i think color has a real physical effect i think it's so interesting i love how you can't say when a blue becomes a red you know in that purple area there's yeah, no it's not yeah. a category you can't place it in a category and again like when i think or articulate thoughts i think of that possibility of color to to never be categorized and and never be attached to its object and how color lingers in memory or in you can perceive something from the side of your eyes you can feel it more than see it. There's mm -hmm. so much. Yeah, and it changes. Like the that red one day could feel like X, but depending on how your the the next 24 hours go for you outside of studio, you come in that same red can feel like Y. I, right. I mean, I like the sort of personal experience and how we sort of project that onto colors too. Absolutely, and yeah. it's always relational. Like yeah. there's never. Uh, a color is never best described by something intrinsic to itself. You know, it's always in relation to something else. That's well said. Uh, I read, I think, in an interview with you um, from a few years ago, you said something that was, I, I thought, really wonderful, and I wanted to present it to you and, and ask you to talk a little, uh, talk about it a bit more, was you mentioned that um, you, you like this idea of making work that isn't necessarily <laughs> optimistic, but making work that is accepting of happiness. Does this, huh. is this, does <laughs> this still hold? familiar, yeah. yeah, but I don't remember saying that, but that does. does it still land for you, for you yeah, in here? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think you can accept, I, I think m I try to accept a lot through my work. And I think accepting happiness is actually quite difficult um, because of, many things yeah no i agree <laughs> um but it doesn't need to be an escapist thing it can be an acceptance in spite of everything else and i when you brought this up i thought you were gonna say stubbornness because i think of stubbornness as a pretty guiding principle too yeah yeah i it, think you just have to be stubborn to yeah. be an artist would you identify any of your works as stubborn I yeah, mean, if we, if we could, <laughs> they all are. <laughs> what other sort of adjectives would you put on these works? That's too hard. I don't know. I yeah. think stubborn is a really good quality, though. Yeah. I think you, you, it because to me it's liberating not to have to be right to continue something, and that's yeah. what stubborn is to me. You can, you just continue. Yeah, you just continue. That's, <laughs> that's well said. Uh, you know, we're, we're sort of. Approaching the end here, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that you recently were awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and that's sort of my setup to talk about like what's on the horizon for you. Do you have plans um, or projects that are coming up that you're excited to sort of share out loud or, 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 or is there, did the, the, the Guggenheim, because it's, a, it's a, a financial award, isn't it? it you, get, is. you get a chunk of money. Is this allowing you to sort of s like realize a project that you've had in the back of your head? Uh, you know, what, yeah, are, what, what yeah, what's down it, the road? It is, and I'll see which, um, what exactly the project turns out to be in the real world. But definitely it's, um, it's a chunk of money that hopefully will allow me to spend more time in the studio uh, because I might have time off for work, which would be wonderful. Right. Um, but also unrelated to the Guggenheim where my family, Brian, Lou, and I are going to Florence to live for four months uh, because I'm teaching there. Oh, wonderful. So that we're going in September. So that's exciting. That's what I've been kind of trying to organize because I had to find a school for Lou and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all those sort of like family obligations for when you oh travel God, as an artist. Oh, so much logistics. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been... A real uh, pleasure to to talk about your work with you and some of the ideas uh, 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 around them. 
and um, see some of the work in progress and learn more about you and your work. And I know we've we've been trying to set up the studio visit for <laughs> it's like been a while, right? <laughs> almost a year or talk something like that. Talk about stubbornness, yeah, right? Yeah, talk about stubbornness. <laughs> so um, I appreciate you participating in this project. And My yeah, thank huge you. pleasure. Thank you. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.